also comes back to this question of who are you giving a platform to? And are you giving a platform to the same kind of people and the same kind of voices that you can literally go anywhere else in London and hear? Or are you giving a platform to voices and ideas and people from backgrounds that maybe don't get that? And I think we lean more towards that latter. Hey TEDxers, welcome to another episode of Solving for X. I'm your host, Jay Harati, and today we're talking to Mariam Pasha. She's the organizer of TEDx London, which she's been organizing for the last couple of years. But she's been with TEDx since 2011. Before TEDx London, she was the organizer of TEDx East End. We're talking to Mariam about an interesting and complicated subject. This is the topic of how you bring diversity, inclusion, and representation to your TEDx stage. Many of us here at TED, and I know many of you on TEDx events around the world, are thinking about how to make your TEDx stage truly represent your community and bring different voices to the world of ideas. And how to go about it is not always easy. Mariam has a strong point of view and many tips and suggestions. I think you're going to find the conversation fascinating. Let's dive right in. Mariam, welcome to Solving for X. Thank you for having me. It's so good to have you. I'm so excited to have this conversation. I'm going to start by asking you some questions about your community, but really we're going to focus today's conversation on a topic that is important, complicated to talk about, uh, which is around how you build a stage for diversity, for inclusion, and for representation. And I'm really looking forward to dive into that. But why don't we start? Tell us a little bit about the TEDx community that you've built in London, how it was when it was TEDx East End, and how has it evolved and grown, if at all, when you took over TEDx London? Yeah, obviously there was a big change taking over the TEDx London license two years ago. Um, You know, TEDx East End, I think like a lot of TEDx organizers, we grew that organically from 100 people and seven years later we were at 1,000. And so, you know, these were people who've been with us and they believe what we believe. They saw the world the way we saw the world. It was that diverse East London kind of crowd. And taking over TEDx London, you know, the first year was a bit of a shock. It was a different audience. They had different expectations. They represented different parts of London that maybe we hadn't engaged with before. And we really did a lot of work to be more explicit about who we were and what we did. And we also launched TEDx London Women. And that was amazing because that also has its totally its own audience, you know. And, mm. it, and, and that audience was, I mean, they were hungry for something like this. I think it taps into a, a segment of Londoners where it, they're diverse and maybe there's not a lot out there as London becomes more, more like most capital cities, expensive and exclusive. You know, we're trying to tap into parts of London that aren't just for that 1%. Mm. And that's both in your women event and your your general standard event. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do it from everything from ticket prices, from the language we use, the way we reach out to different communities. You know, we, we, as we grow and we, we have more capacity, we're trying to curate our audience more. And that has less to do with selection and more to do with just letting people know we're here and that we're for them, you know. We want people who love TED in the audience, but we kind of want people who have never heard of TED there as well. Mm. Can you describe in a little bit more detail what you communicated? Sure. You know, it was as simple as we used to create these really beautiful graphic identities to launch our ticket sales. And we realized that if you don't know what TED is, you don't know that what you're coming to is like a person standing on a stage 
with people listening to them. So we had to like take it back and use, you know, that iconic image that every TEDx has of the speaker mm-hmm. on the stage yeah. and the audience because we realized that we were making an assumption and then we were only speaking to a small group of people. And then for people who were familiar with TED, the work we had to do was that this is different than watching TED Talks at home. We may have more of a perspective than you may think. And what is that perspective? Mm-hmm. So the clearest example I can give you is, you know, with, with TEDx London Women in the UK right now, there's a really contentious and toxic debate around trans women and the right of trans women to exist in spaces and so we are we made a very clear decision to to be inclusive um of trans women of non-binary people of gender fluid people and we put that in all of our marketing for tedx london women and it it really paid off Hmm. when you took over the tedx london license did you suddenly have a heightened sense of responsibility to represent the city because now you are, you are London Absolutely. and how did you experience that and what what did that mean in in your head yeah that yes is the simple answer there <laughs> absolutely i mean it was a huge it was a huge thing you know it's something that i think i had like played around with in my mind for many many years and it had always been this like well that's never i'm never going to do that that's not going to be me and and to take it over from from Tom, who had revived it, you know, um, and had done such a good job of reviving it, had taken it from nothing to an actual, the active community, and then to take over from him, it was a huge responsibility, especially since we ran our events very differently, we ran our teams very differently. We did a lot of work in the beginning about who we were and what we were good at and what we wanted to keep from TEDx East End and what we would need to change. But also, you know, what did we want to represent as London and and what kind of London did we want to represent? And obviously, all this is happening against a backdrop of Brexit, a rise in hate crime in the UK, a rise of Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. All of this is happening. And it was it hugely impacted how we thought about what we, who we wanted to be and, and what London meant. Hmm. And where does diversity and representation fit into that? So London is one of the most diverse cities and, you know, a third of Londoners were never have not been born in, in the UK, let alone in London. I mean, mm. we joke that, like, I think we have one person on the team who's actually born in London. It, you know, it, London is incredibly diverse in terms of the people that come and move through it. We wanted to loudly say we don't believe in isolation. We believe in, you know, bridges. We believe in community. And so all of that, we decided to try and take up in TEDx London was that some of that energy was to give those people a home where they could come and feel hopeful and feel like they were part of a world uh, you know beyond borders which is really why we use that theme and we keep that theme because it it, it represents not just a thematic topic choice but a, a belief statement. So do you do you articulate your goal when it comes to diversity and inclusion? Do you articulate your goal as to create a stage that is a true representation of the diversity in London? Or do you see it as a goal of providing a home to the diverse members of the community, even though it might be overrepresented relative to the population? Absolutely. I think we overrepresent in ratio to the population. I was actually, I'm a bit of a numbers geek. <laughs> and so I was looking at these numbers the other day because I was in Philly and I you could so visibly see a diversity in Philly that sometimes you don't even get to see in London. And I was looking at the numbers, you know, and, and the thing is that the UK is still not as diverse as places like America, you know. Um, and so even though London is more diverse, we, we do overrepresent, I think, we do have a commitment to, you know, 50% women 
on our main stage, 50% people of color on both of our stages. That may be an overrepresentation, but it also comes back to this question of who are you giving a platform to? And are you giving a platform to the same kind of people and the same kind of voices that you can literally go anywhere else in London and hear? Or are you giving a platform to voices and ideas and people from backgrounds that maybe don't get that? And I think we lean more towards that latter. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. One of the talks that I remember from your TEDx East End event was Juno Mack talk uh, on the rights that sex workers actually want for themselves. Mm. In this talk, I'm going to take you through the four main legal approaches applied to sex work throughout the world and explain why they don't work, why prohibiting the sex industry actually exacerbates every harm that sex workers are vulnerable to. And then I'm going to tell you about what we, as sex workers, actually want. That talk always represented to me that philosophy that you're talking about, about giving a stage to somebody who you might not see yep. on a stage somewhere else. There are not, I've not seen many sex workers giving talks, maybe a couple and all of TEDx uh, mm. around the world, but you've done a job where you really help people expand the way they see and think about what a sex worker yeah. might be like and what they might talk like and what might they be working on. Yeah. Um, that was a great Yeah, example. I mean, working with, you know, and, and what she created is like the pinnacle. You know, for me, every, every year I'm trying to hit that over and over again. And I, I think I've come to realize after thinking about it for so long is one of the reasons her talk was so successful it, and it really changed people's minds, like, like, tangibly change the way people thought about sex work and, and the rights of sex workers is because it wasn't that she came and told a personal story. It was that she weaved her lived experience into a argument and an idea worth spreading, like like a perspective on the world, in this case, legal structures and how they, they could be used to protect or harm people in the sex industry. But it's it, it wouldn't have landed if she was just talking about her personal experience. And it wouldn't have landed if she only talked about it from a legal point of view. It was the the the, the insight that her lived experience and then years of thinking and analyzing and reading. And, you know, she's just published a book that's usually successful on mm. this after her talk. Mm. It had the academic rigor of any professor on that issue combined with the lived experience of someone who has not only experienced it herself, but has done the work of talking to sex workers from around the world and having that legitimacy. I think for me, it's that magical combination that I'm always trying to find. This concept of lived experience is something that we've heard from you, uh, but I think really kind of establishes that you don't need a certain academic degree or you don't need to have reached a certain status in society to get on a TEDx stage. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit like when do you decide they've had a lived experience <laughs> that's worthy of the TEDx stage? You know, yes. It, you know what? It's it, it's such a hard thing, isn't it? Because that it, this this judgment is like I think the the most difficult job you have as a TEDx organizer curator, right? Is feeling comfortable making a judgment on someone else's life. Like who am I to right. make that judgment? But I think that it's when there is an idea there combined with a lived experience that it's at a point that's suitable for a TEDx stage. Like, because we're not, there are lots of storytelling conferences out there. There are lots of conferences there that want to hear people's lived experiences. And, and that is great, you know. But there's this this combination between a lived experience and an idea that I think is what makes it work. Mm. Um, we actively recruit speakers who are 18 to 25. And we try to have a couple of them on stage every year. Just because people don't approach us in that age 
range. So we do a, like a, a big push and we get, last year we had 500 applications for that. Mm. And we picked three and this is actually quite a good example. One of them was a scientist you know, working on a very science thing, like, and, and with nothing about his personal story. And the other one was uh, a young actress who has Asperger's syndrome, had been diagnosed only a year ago, and she weaved her own experience of living on the spectrum and not being diagnosed and then being diagnosed and this both being like an aha moment for her, but then also like this like life sentence and how she feels that it's, we need to change the way we think about autism. You know, it's that combination that I think is magical, but it's also risky. So we, through this young person's program, we did have a speaker that we recruited who we knew was gonna be difficult to work with, that was very vulnerable, was still precarious in some ways in their living situation. We we enlisted the help of people around us who who support young young people like them to make sure that they were getting both the coaching help but also the support and, and all of this. But but in the end, working on the talk brought up too much trauma for that person and they had to stop, go back into therapy, focus on their life. Mm. and may come back in the future so there's that's the thing is like it's not the same as if you're gonna work with someone with lived experience it's not always gonna be the same as working with a professor or an author or a you know a professional public speaker i think sometimes their talks are better and i think they're actually more engaging and more willing to engage in the process but there's always this uh, you have to have this understanding of this risk that it's that person's life and it may not go as you planned yeah i want to take a step back and just hear a little bit about your personal story Sure. Um, because uh, I assume that the drive towards accomplishing a diverse and inclusive stage maybe comes from a personal place. Yeah, So definitely. I'd like to ask you some personal questions, yeah. if I may, <laughs> yes. which I've never asked you before. <laughs> uh, but what is your personal story in terms of your background? Uh, you grew up in the UK and how that has influenced the way you see the world in, in your country. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, my personal experience has absolutely influenced my perspective. I'm Iranian by heritage. I was born in Iran. I left when I was two and I moved to the UK. Um, I I left, as so many people do then, because I was a girl living in a country where I would not have the same rights. And I was uh, in a family that was incredibly progressive and liberal and were all feminists and couldn't, you know, not tolerate that kind of living. You know, my grandmother was the first female obstetrician gynecologist recognized in Iran, like one of seven female doctors. So for us, there was no chance of bringing up a girl or even a boy in that in that context. And so mm-hmm. we all left. And, and I think watching my parents who have six degrees between them trying to remake this life, even though they were educated in the UK. So they had an advantage to so many migrants and knowing that they gave everything up so that I could have this absolutely influences the way I see the world. Let's talk about your strategies to build a diverse program. How do you think about your program as a whole? Sure. Um, so I think we start quite crudely sometimes. You know, we, we've had this same theme, Society Beyond Borders at TEDx East End and Beyond Borders and at TEDx London. you have the same theme every year? Yeah, as long as you guys keep letting us. <laughs> I mean, maybe I shouldn't I, have told I have, you. <laughs> I have literally never heard of anyone doing that. I don't think we have a rule on it, so it works. <laughs> Phew. Um, every year we submit the application and we think, oh, they know this is the same thing. Um, 
Uh, yeah, we've had the same thing. And you know why? Is because it keeps being relevant. Every year, I think I have nothing more to say about this, and then like one minute later after the event, I'm like, no, I have. A, there's so much more to say, and it's become more relevant to our audience. You know, in the beginning, we were just banging on about it to like a small group of people, and then as the world fell apart around them, everyone was like, oh yeah, actually that aligns with us. So, mm. so our theme is our values a set as well. So it kind of puts it out there immediately, and then we start. I start kind of crudely. You know, I say to myself, I've got 18 spots on this lineup and I'm going to have a balance of men and women and I'm also going to have as many you know non-binary voices as possible on this stage you know sometimes more successfully or less successfully but at least gender is the easiest like in a way balance to get and then also with people of color so we try to make sure we have at least 50% people of color on stage and you just once you've set that rule you've set that rule you know for yourself it's and it's not always easy you know I know that people get made fun of when they said oh I just couldn't find any you know, Asian women to talk about X topic. And I think to myself, yeah, there's a reason. Like, there's a reason you can't find that. It's not easy. But if you've committed to it, you start. So I start crudely. And I just say, okay, that's what I want. This is, you, you said targets. That's Do it. you, when you say I want to have 50% um, people of color, do you drill down be below that? Because there, because people of color is a huge Massive. category, yeah, right? Yeah. It's a, it includes maybe well, certainly. I mean, I don't yeah. know that maybe includes us. Yeah. Maybe it includes uh, well, certainly people of Indian, Pakistani, yeah. you know, African descent, uh, Asians. Yeah. Do you do you have mm. sub targets? No, we don't. I I don't do that only because I I find that slightly more like not difficult, but I find that to be, it's it becomes too tokenistic then in in a way. I, it's a judgment call I've made. I could imagine that someone could convince me to do it another way, but um, I think because because also because people are not. Um I mean, people are so mixed now that sometimes I find that it's even like a a little bit of a false dis- distinction because you know if if someone is is mixed race, like you know, where do I put them? And that's wonderful. Right. So I think it it's it's both rigid, but based in reality, if that makes sense. In that I won't be like oh well we, we have too many like persian women speaking I'm not, right you know, um, maybe you'll pick that up so if you say i have 18 speakers nine people should be non-white i yes, presume that's right it. and then and then you'll notice if you suddenly have eight persian women yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you'll make you'll be like ah, i overdid it on the persian women all right um, so, yeah. i need to stop calling my relatives <laughs> exactly. um Okay, so then, uh, so how, so now you are looking for a scientist of a certain background. How do you, people say it's hard because it is hard to find yeah. people of certain backgrounds in certain professions. What's your secret weapon? So we do a couple of things. We do have open applications. So we will look through that list, you know, from time to time and see if there's anyone good there. Um, you know, I think that all TEDx organizers have the same problem with those kinds of applications. They're 99% from the same industry type people, and type of people. Yeah. But we do find some gems in there. So that's that's cool. You know, I, I'm up for that. Um, we do, like, research. Like, de- you know, we watch things. We read things. We go to events. We listen to podcasts. We look at other events. We just do a lot of that kind of, you know, finding someone, watching a video about them, reading an article they've written, and then seeing if they go on a shortlist type kind of thing. Seeing. And then the third thing we do is we, we talk to others 
to get recommendations. You know, um, so we'll talk to past speakers. Past speakers are a great source of ideas. We'll talk to just people in our network. So if I'm looking for, uh, you know, if I'm looking for a geneticist or if I'm looking for someone from the trans community, I might go and ask people, like, who are the most interesting people you've heard recently? Who are uh, the talks you've been to or the podcasts that maybe I haven't heard of? Can you point me in that direction? But when you pose these questions, do you say, do you add at the end who are not white? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes I'll be like, look, I'm, I prefer to, if you recommend like women or people of color or non-white people or I'm, I'm you know, I might say I'm, I'm specifically looking for like a non-binary scientist. Do you know anyone? Um, and you'd be surprised. Like people, you know, if you're in that industry, you have so much more insight to it than if I'm just trying to Google you. It, it's, I think it's, that's where it's difficult. If you're just trying to find people through like typing in like, you know, black female spoken word artist who talks about race, like you're gonna get the same three people because that's what ends up happening, right? You're, you're like, you're gonna find that one person who someone else found who then has a video and then someone else found them for that video and gave them another video and all right. of a sudden they have a great presence and that's amazing, but there could be 40 other people, but just who don't have, they're not popping We're up not to the, the top of the result. search. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's exactly it's it's just that it's digging down into it sometimes and not being afraid of sometimes those searches which can sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable but you can do there are some great lists you know like there's the pride list there's the black leaders list there're lists that people make for exactly this reason and you can drill down into them I've heard a curator mention once this strategy of if there's a scientific development that you want to represent, sometimes it's really easy to go to the person at the top at the academic institution, but by the def by nature of our society where it is right now, that might mm. be a white male. Uh, but sometimes saying, who is your partner? Who's the one? Who's the right-hand person who you worked with? Maybe didn't have the top position, but, but actually was a big part of the work, yeah. kind of like their lieutenant, and you might find more diversity there. Is that, does that resonate with yes. you as an experience? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, what's great about academia and academic papers is they list all the authors. So you just go through them and you look at who's there. You know, you look at who's on that list. Um, but, yeah, I mean, an example of this is decellularization, which I can't even say. <laughs> <laughs> which is actually on your Inst Ted's Instagram today. You know, it's, it's, we had a speaker who's a young 22-year-old Spanish scientist. Is he the inventor of it? No. But is he working on a lab and is he incredibly passionate about it? And is he an incredible science communicator? Yeah. And I think it's also sacrificing that fear of like, if I don't get the guy, because it's often a guy, like the top person, then my talk's not going to be as popular. Maybe it's not going to be selected for TED. Maybe it's not going to get the viewership. And I get those anxieties, but you kind of have to back people, you know. I want people to come to TEDx London and then be like, oh my God, I heard this amazing person. And the first place I heard them was TEDx London. And mm. now they are huge you know i don't want people to come to telex london and be like oh here's this overexposed individual who i've heard 14 times speak already and now they're speaking in telex london hmm. so beyond setting quotas how do you make sure that the topics that they cover are also diverse and maybe not predictable yeah absolutely this is a trap that people can fall into, you know, because when then you do look for women, let's say, and they are at the top of their industry, they're going to be at the top of industries where stereotypically they've been allowed to get to that point, you know. So maybe it's like education or maybe it's the arts or maybe it's the nonprofit sector. 
But what about physics and genetics and engineering, those hard sciences? So you have to make sure that it's not just enough to set the quotas. You have to also think that if I'm doing this to challenge some of those stereotypes, I also have to challenge the industries that I think where the credible voices come from. Because why is it not credible to have uh, African-American or Asian or a woman or a non-binary person talking about physics as it is to have, you know, a, someone who has mm. had tenure for 20 mm. years. And do you find yourself uh, applying the same effort towards men speakers? So are you liberating men from what society expects them to do in engineering and energy <laughs> and science and giving them opportunity to be in art or social science or nonprofit but do, do you feel you do the, re the reverse as well yeah it's I, okay to say no no I mean, no <laughs> what's interesting is so there's two things one is you have to be really 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 good to be a cis white heterosexual able-bodied man and be on the telex london stage like really good um at the top you know and then it's just easier to find those people because those are the people who are on all the platforms who've been you know released all the books who've done the other talks so actually that for me is a much easier jigsaw pieces those are the last pieces i've kind of put into place because i'm always going to find uh you know a great man to speak about a topic and i also think that we get stuff wrong and we don't do it enough we're not great with the representation of disability on our stage as much as i would like you know that's something we're working on so i think it's okay to try yeah, the disability topic is interesting. I, I wonder, uh, I'm curious about your perspective of it. There was one talk, I believe it was from TEDx Sydney, about I'm not your inspiration porn. You know, I'm sitting on this stage, looking like I do, in this wheelchair, and you are probably kind of expecting me to inspire you. Right? <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you dramatically. I'm not here to inspire you. I'm here to tell you that we have been lied to about disability. Yeah, we've been sold the lie that disability is a bad thing. Capital B, capital T. It's a bad thing. And to live with disability makes you exceptional. It's not a bad thing. And it doesn't make you exceptional. Yeah, Stella's talk from TEDx Sydney, I think was my, like, re-education, was just this, oh, I have just been seeing the world wrong. Like, yeah. what? And, you know, when, once your eyes are open, they're open, right? So it is hard because we do get applications from people with disabilities who want to be inspiring. And I kind of don't want to play into that narrative, this idea that the only time you hear from someone with a disability is because they're there to make you feel less bad about your own life, which is essentially what Stella's saying, right? Is that we, we're inspired by these people because we think, oh, wow, if they can do it, I can do it. It's, no, you can't be a Paralympian, probably. You know, these people are elite athletes. Yeah. So we try to stay away from that, that kind of stereotypical, oh, this person has such a hard life, let them inspire me. And how they overcame and how they their overcame barrier, right? And yeah. how you can too. And if people want to talk about disability, we want them talking about the things that actually when you talk to 
disability charities, when you talk to people who are at the forefront of this, they want to be talking about, like they want to be talking about the social model of disability. They want to be talking about representation, equal pay. They want to be talking about the destruction of the social welfare state. And a great example of this was, so we had a speaker this year, uh, Peter Apps. He's a journalist. He was paralyzed from the neck down in an accident about 10 years ago. And, you know, we, we first talked, he's always used to being asked to talk about his accident right. and his journey. And I was like, I was like, I don't mean to be insensitive, Peter, but I don't want to hear about that. I was like, you're a journalist with incredible frontline experience and the world is falling apart. Please help me understand that. And if you can weave your story into it, which he did so beautifully, then great. But I'm not here to listen to you tell me about that because I don't think you should also have to re-traumatize yourself to tell the story over and over again. You've been tackling the issue of bias and prejudice, not just on the stage, but you've also taken it to off-stage activations. Yep. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. There's two things we've done this year. We have started something called our Accessibility Charter. So we're looking to build an open source charter for live events to make them more accessible to people with accessibility needs, whether those are disabilities or temporary accessibility needs, things like closed captioning, sign language, a lot of things that telexes have, but also like a quiet room. And there's loads of stuff that we're learning and and, and it's amazing actually. Um, The other thing we do is this year in one of our activations, we had an IAT, an implicit associations test. It's a test developed by Harvard and we had them modify it to look at unconscious bias towards inequality and poverty. So the original test is around gender and race and, and you can adapt it using the same kind of methods to a different subject. And we wanted to see whether it would change throughout the day. Like as people listen to more talks, whether their scores would change. And it, it did. We moved them a whole point, which is quite a big deal in this world. And that was amazing. Interesting, interesting. Do you get criticized by your community? I mean, I know trying to do this right is not easy, and especially not in today's climate. You can get criticized from everybody. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we get criticized all the time. Um, uh, She says with a smile. (laughs) We get some great, great comments on our NPS. On one side, we get, this is too diverse, my favorite comment, Um, to which I think, good. I mean, you know, you, you, there, there's a, at some point you can't please everyone. And that has been my biggest learning over the last, I guess, nine years of doing this is I take the kinds of negative criticism I get as positive reinforcement for doing it right. Like there are certain kinds of criticism I want to be getting and there's certain kinds I don't want. And that is the kind I want to be getting. So I'm happy, <laughs> right? On the other hand, yes, absolutely. You know, we had we had this incredible uh, female scientist speaking at Telex London Women. She is trans. She was talking about freedom of speech on campus. And we were, were promoting her on Twitter. And someone said, why do you have to say she's a trans woman? She's just a scientist. And yeah, we totally agreed. But the great thing is we really work with our speakers. And so she kind of came in and said, yes, I am but I'm specifically talking about it from my identity, and so I wanted them to include this. Mm. We're always going to make mistakes, and we're going to get criticized by everyone. We have this new thing on our team. We've just kind of started doing it. I don't know where it's going to go yet, but we want to get people to be more comfortable to say, I've changed my mind. Like, I made a mistake. I was wrong before, and I've changed my mind, and that's okay. So I think if you if someone says to me someone let's say from the trans or from a disability community says to me you've done this wrong 
I'm always like, thank you so much. Tell mm. me more. Mm. Like, come in and help us do it That's right. Nice. The one side, I'm like, yep, we're too diverse. Feel free. There's like 25 other events in London that you can go to that are less diverse. I'm sure you'll feel at home there. And then for the other side, I'm like, please help. And I think that's all you can do, really. We're all learning. I mean, we are yeah. we are doing the same thing at TED. And sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. And being open to saying, yeah. help us, we're learning, is powerful. I've heard you say that diversity is about telling the truth. What does that mean? Oh, okay. Truth is a complicated topic these days, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Um, so... I think this means two things to me. One is that, and this is best said in America Ferrara's TED Talk that came out this year at, at the event, um, which is that diversity is not about creating some kind of false world. It's just about opening up the doors and looking outside. Um, so that's part of it for me. And the other thing is diversity is, is about being comfortable with the fact that you can be truthful and not neutral. Like being... Being neutral isn't always actually being truthful. Those things are not the same. So um, Christian Amanpour said this, and it just, again, it was like an amazing thing. She said, I'm truthful, not neutral. And I said, I thought to myself, that is the phrase I've been looking for my whole life because it's saying that there's sometimes you can create a false equivalency when you're trying to find a balance, when you're trying to find neutrality. Sometimes you get trapped in a false equivalence where you say, oh, I've had this person talking about the benefits of diversity. Now I need to have a racist on right, my stage. Right, right, right. That's not, those two things are not equal, actually. And in so many contexts, in the news media, we're told that those two things are equal. But it's not. Being truthful actually says that there are some things where I know these to be right and I know these to be real. I know you are a, an, active, an active member of the TEDx community in the UK. I think we ran into each other there at a, at a regional workshop that I visited a couple of years ago and also around the world. When you go to other TEDx events and you look at their curation uh, critically, uh, what do you sometimes feel that is perhaps missing? Sometimes I wish there was more diversity because obviously that's what I like, right? I, I sometimes think to myself, I understand that this area isn't diverse, but there could be more on stage. I think that what is sometimes missing from TEDx events is from the curator's point of view as well. Like I think that one of the things I struggle with is that there aren't a lot of women curating it's better in the telex community than it is anywhere else of course it is and what i always want to say is like open up your creation teams to more diverse voices i think it's that point of view i think it's people not being afraid i think like as a woman of color uh, as a migrant as you know as all the things i am my life has been political with a lowercase p from the mm -hmm. first day right um I don't know how to live in a world that doesn't see me as some kind of political statement in my just in my existence. So I don't see why people should shy, shy away from that. Mm. Um, and to clarify to our listeners, I know that when you're describing have a be more political by showing the world the way you want it to be, you don't mean putting a politician on stage no. who is speaking about the political party Never platform. Never put a politician well, on no, stage. Of course, I understand the that. The worst speakers. I, you and I both understand that. I just want to make yeah. sure that... Lowy case P for me uh, means like, uh, it means like the intersectionality of race and gender. It means like economic policies that are working and are helping rejuvenate communities but are, or are harmful. It means like environmental consequences that are driving forced migration. These are all things with a lowercase p. 
Miriam, you are a force. Thank you. <laughs> It's been really good to talk to you. I hope this will be as informative and challenging and, and a good beginning of conversation for many TEDx teams around the world that are, I'm sure, exploring this topic and, and trying to figure out the best path forward. Uh, we love everything that you do for the community. And I've loved watching you grow in, in the process as well. You've really grown and evolved and still apparently full of energy. <laughs> so thank th you, Jay. Th thanks for the advice and all the wisdom. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on this. It's, it's wonderful. A, it's a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Solving for X. Join us on the TEDx Hub to find additional resources on this topic. You can also share your insights or ask questions. This episode was produced with love by Bianca de Jesus, recorded by Taylor Stemley and researched by Tsvetina Deneva. This episode was edited by Mickey Kapper. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the Solving for X channel wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, or of course on the TEDx Hub. Thank you for listening to Solving for X. See you next time. <laughs>